It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 28th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The money that the state funds the Football Association of Ireland with comes under the spotlight today. Firstly, because the FAI has had around €3 million withheld from it because of the many questions about how it manages its finances. Secondly, there is no immediate prospect of restoring that funding because a report into FAI spending has been referred to the Gardaí by Sport Ireland. This means uh, that the FAI faces a shortfall of €3 million. Significant as that may sound, it may not be possible to restore the funding, at least not while the questions about FAI governance remain unanswered and those questions will remain unanswered indefinitely it seems as the audit commissioned by Sport Ireland means that the report by the Northern Ireland firm Cozy will not be made public because of the involvement of the police. Let's talk about this with local Fidegal TD Fergus O'Dowd who's the chairperson of the Oireachtas Sports Committee and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. When were you made aware that you were not going to get sight of this report and that it was in fact being... I had a meeting with the Minister yesterday about half four and I met him along with senior officials and his lead advisor there uh, junior Minister uh, Brendan Griffin and um, other officials and they, they gave me a letter which uh, summarised the position. The position is that it's gone to the Gardaí. Mm. I asked for the report at the committee meeting. I asked for the forensic audit. So I'm pleased that it's been done. Obviously, clearly, if there are issues which they believe are germane to the Gardaí, that's fine. And clearly, we don't want to prejudice in any way any proceedings that may or may not take place. Have you been but briefed, though, on the findings of the audit? I haven't been briefed on the findings, no. Has no, the we minister been the briefed findings. on the findings? He told me that his department had got a copy of the audit, uh, but um, I, I don't honestly know if he had read it or not. As I understand it, he would have got it yesterday morning, or maybe around lunch hour. I met him at half four. The issue for me was mm. that, first of all, that it's gone to the Gardaí, Secondly, that our committee are anxious if we can get the details, and I'll be talking to the members today, details other than the per- if, if we can publish uh, any facts that do not partake or participate with any potential guard investigation, uh, if that can be done, that's what we were talking about. 
and their opinion was that that couldn't be done. Um, well, you know, I don't want to, I, I haven't seen it, so I don't know, but mm. clearly I will be talking to my committee and I'll be talking to the minister again. Uh, but it is a very serious issue. But if it's with the guards, it's with the guards. But that could go on for, as you know yourself, that could go on for a year at least. So, you, you, so the question is, the money is not going to the young people. It's not going to women's soccer at the moment. Mm. Uh, that's about 2.5 million a year. So my view is if we can get that money to them through Sport Ireland and not through the FAI, not through the FAI at all, we should try and do that. And I'll try and concentrate on that issue now. Okay. Um, the, over the next we'll come back days, to that yeah. in a moment uh, if we can. Uh, the report hasn't been given to the FAI either, has it? Well, I don't know that. What the FAI have said that they saw a site of drafts. I do know there were discussions between COSI and the FAI. I was in constant uh, weekly contact with John Tracy, who's the chief executive of Sport Ireland. And I, he was, because we were anxious to get them in as soon as we could. And uh, there were, obviously, the audit was being done by COSI in the FAI, so it wouldn't be unreasonable to expect that there would be discussions between them about uh, whatever the content of the information they were seeking. So uh, did they see the audit finally, the final one, uh, from reading the press this morning? It doesn't appear that they did. At least that's what they're saying. Uh, But, like, it was done for Sport Mm. Ireland, so... It's proper Sport Ireland have it. So Cozy reported, Cozy are the firm who conducted this audit and they reported to Sport Ireland. So the report was delivered to Sport Ireland and the government funding is channeled through Sport Ireland to the FAI, isn't it? That's it, Michael. Yes. Okay. So, 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 so what's the Sport Ireland view on whether funding should be restored to them or not? Well, I was ringing John Tracy yesterday. He had a board meeting in the morning. And obviously, clearly, he sent me a text saying that he was where I was meeting the minister. So as soon as I can, I'll ring him this morning and talk to him about it. Uh, and I'll talk to the minister again, because as everybody wants the tap turned on mm. uh, to to young people and to women's soccer. And if we can find a way of doing that, uh, that's what we should do. Uh, but then there are other big questions for the FAI. They've got 50 million is the money they've got from the taxpayers since 2008. And obviously, clearly, this audit was about, A, the alleged 100,000 loan, and B, the capacity of the FAI to be, you know, to manage public funds. So, like, I mean, I don't know how far they went back in this report, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of money being given to them, and there's a lot of accountability, you know, questions there, you know. Well, it would seem as though that is the case or at least that that would be the view of Sport Ireland because they've seen this report uh, you haven't had sight of the audit nor have I uh, so uh, no. we can only make uh, assumptions that Sport Ireland's conclusion is that there was something very very wrong so wrong in fact that it needed to be investigated by the police yes yeah, so that, that, that is obviously that is obviously a very serious uh, outcome for everybody uh, obviously who may be mentioned in the report and clearly, when the Gardaí are looking at something like that, obviously they have to go through it in fine detail. So it's going to be, you know, it, it'll take some time, I would suggest. So, so, uh, so, so there's an allegation of the FAI uh, dealing with public money uh, in, in a way that could be criminal. Yeah. Uh, front, please. Sorry, Michael, I'm just getting into a taxi. I apologise for this. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, uh, I didn't realise that you were uh, walking and talking to us uh, and getting into a taxi, as uh, the case may be. Fergus O'Dowd, uh, the chairperson of uh, the Sports Committee, uh, talking to us uh, about uh, this report uh, that Sport Ireland commissioned and has subsequently referred to Angarda Siakana. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, you're able to come back to us there, Fergus O'Dowd. I'm just getting into a taxi here, and the man has been very helpful. He's taken my crutches for me. Oh, yes, I've forgotten that no. you'd broken your leg. Okay. <laughs> So I apologise for that. So listen, go ahead, Michael, I can hear you now. Okay, so the allegation is uh, that the way the uh, money provided to the FAI by the state uh, was handled uh, could have been uh, criminal. Well, I think the question is, had they the capacity to handle the funding? Well, surely there's a criminal allegation or or suspicion of criminal activity if it's being referred to the Guardian. Again, Michael, again, obviously, they judge it to be a very serious issue. I can't comment on what is in it because I don't know. But I do welcome the fact that... And before before you were getting into the taxi, I very intentionally framed the question in that way. But I think it's a fair assumption to make that there is a suspicion uh, in Sport Ireland or a a fear in Sport Ireland that they want cleared up as to whether there was uh, an element of criminality in the way the funding that was given to the FAI was handled or not. The questions that I asked at the committee initially, three times I asked FAI, would they do a forensic audit? And they wouldn't answer that question positively. So then I said to them that there had to be regime change in the FAI. And that's where it's at right now. That change Mm. hasn't been completed. There are still members of the board uh, who were there then are there now. And I think that they should all go so that we get a fresh start for for, for everybody. What the Gardaí, the Gardaí may not prosecute either. We don't know. We don't actually know what may happen But th- th- this is the question. How can money be given to the FAI or to uh, the uh, elements of the FAI that you want to see supported, uh, such as uh, kids' clubs and women's football uh, and yeah. so on? How can that happen without it being channeled through the FAI? Uh, and if there are questions, and very yeah. serious questions, whatever those questions are, there are, they are undoubtedly very serious, so serious that they have to be referred to to a police investigation. So if there are questions about how that money is being handled, how can it be given to that organisation? Well, it can't, Michael. That's pure and simple. You're absolutely right. But what I'm suggesting is, at the moment, Sport Ireland uh, gives the money and they know exactly the clubs that get it or the the full-time people who work with young people, the youth, youth workers. They know who they are, you know, and they get the invoices. Uh, I presume, whatever, I don't know what the issues were in the audit, mm. but I, I would think that if we can, and I appreciate it's not an easy, simple thing to do, it's easy to say, it's not so easy to do, that if they can continue paying them, uh, because it would be at least another year, I would think, before we'll be back, you know, after the Gardaí have dealt with this. So that's too long for those uh, young people and women to wait for. Mm. I think we have to find a way outside of the FAI to do that if it's possible and that's what I hope to ask John Tracy after our conversation. And is that a way of facilitating the existing board? Well I mean the existing board is in is in a state of change there are there is an independent chairman about to be appointed there are four uh, outside directors of, uh, Yeah but you wanted them all to step down and that didn't happen no, These are new members no, these are, no this is part of you see since our meeting this is the change that has taken place Sorry, Michael, if I misunderstand you. There are four new independent directors 
uh, and and an outside chairman to be appointed. But there are still at least one, if not two, members of the old board still in place, and I think they must go. Yes, yes, absolutely. But oh, no, no, uh, yeah, no, we're not. Uh, but are are you suggesting that Sport Ireland uh, would somehow bypass the FAI to give money, let's say, to women's football? If it's possible, Michael. If it's, uh, and if it's, if it's, and that. Sorry. And that the board members you object to remain in situ? No, no, those board members, in my view, have to go. Um, absolutely, they have to go. I'm just thinking of a way, if it's possible, to give them the money. I don't know if it is or not, and obviously I'll find out soon enough on that one. Uh, but I think we should certainly try to do that. Uh, that's not incompatible with changing the board, uh, asking existing members who were there before to resign immediately. Uh, and the other point that arises, the new independent directors, as I understand it uh, from reports in the paper, that they haven't taken up their appointment because they haven't seen the Cozy report. And there are two other reports. There's the Mazars report and there's the Grant Thornton report into the organisation as well. Now, those two were commissioned by the FAI, so I don't know where they're at right now. So there's a lot, there's a lot of storms, a lot of clouds around the whole thing. So I'm just trying to see, get a bit of light in, in terms of if you can restore the funding appropriately and properly. Mm. Secondly, get rid or ask other directors who are involved for them to go. And thirdly, if you can find a way in which the independent directors and the new executive chairman, or sorry, the new independent chairman uh, can, uh, you know, if they can mm. take up office. Um, but they need, obviously, they need to know, as I understand it, what's in this report can some of it be redacted so they can see what's it, if it's an issue around about systems mm. or processes or I don't know what the issues are, but clearly they're very serious. But all all, all of that means to get this far. But I mean, all of that means, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it sounds to me as though what you're saying is that, that there will be no uh, publication, there will be no public sight of uh, the audit into FAI governance and how it's been spending public money for at least a year, in your estimation. I, I, uh, I think that's only my own estimation. If there's a guard it, investigation, yes, it, it, but it, it, it take time. Okay, that, that, but that's exactly what you're saying. In your own estimation, at least a year, could be longer than that, uh, and that uh, there's no possible way of uh, restoring this €3 million Euro in funding. Well, that's, well, I think we've got to find a way of doing that. But you've said that will not happen. I mean, if Donald Conway doesn't... It doesn't have to be done through... It doesn't have to be done through the FAI. In other words, you know, the the process, maybe... maybe But but you have said Donald Conway will have to step down uh, if it's to be done. If it's to be done some other way. And if he doesn't, uh, which would seem to be uh, his ongoing position, he's stood firm, uh, that uh, this funding shouldn't be made available and therefore won't be made available. But that's the point of view that people have as well, Paul. Or sorry, uh, Mike. Does, 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 that is a that is a view that some people have. I have a different view. I'm just saying if it's possible to do it, and I'll be able to come back to you on that after I've spoken to to John Tracy and the minister today. I, I, I suppose that's that's where it's at. But but but, but you are saying it won't be possible to do it, aren't you? No, I'm not. No, no. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that I hope it will be possible to do it. To, to make the funding available and Donald Conway to remain on? No, not for him to go, Michael. But no, what no. if he doesn't go? It won't be possible. That's exactly no, what I'm asking. What I'm that, no, what I'm saying is just money should be given if it can be No, given. I know that. But what I'm no, saying separate, to you... Separate, not, nothing to do with the FBI. 
they don't handle this money. It doesn't go through their system. So he can stay in place and the money can be made available? That he should go and the money be made. But what if he doesn't go? Well, that's up, that's up to him. And it's well, up to well no, that's up to him. But if that's what he decides, what about the money? Well, Michael, you know, that's that's a conundrum, obviously. Um, I'm, I'm giving you my view, and clearly... No, you, but I'm, I'm sorry, you're not. If, you, if your view is you, do, you haven't come to a view yet, I'll accept that as an answer, Fergus O'Dowd. No, but, I have come to a view, Michael. But what is your view? Yeah. What if Donald Conway stays in place? Uh, can the three million be restored to the FAI clubs? Well, I think that the clubs. Uh, well, I see what you're getting at there now. Yeah, sorry, excuse me. Well, I, I, I think he will go. I think he will go. But I if he, he doesn't go. go, can the money be restored? Well, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Because Mike. you, you said he will go. I think back in October, and he didn't go. I, I can't speak for him, but I do know he did say he would. He said he would go at the end of this process, I think. I, I don't have his words in front of me. Uh, but look, nothing is perfect in this, Michael. Uh, and um, as far as I'm concerned, I've given you my view. Uh, I understand what you're saying to me. And obviously, I'll be talking to other people today, see if I can be okay. forward. Okay, uh, we'll watch uh, that uh, with space and... Uh Thank you, or with uh, interest, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, apologies uh, to our, our listeners uh, as well uh, for uh, the distraction uh, during that interview with Fergus O'Dowd for the Gael TD for Loud and Chairperson of the Sports Eroctus Committee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to some remarkable political stories. Perhaps there's nothing remarkable about housing and homelessness being part of an election campaign or a key issue. Uh, uh, well, that may be the case, uh, but the fact that the by-elections are taking place tomorrow and for TDs will be elected over this weekend. The first thing they will have to do as uh, their re- part of their role as TDs will be to vote uh, as to whether they have confidence or not in the Minister for Housing because of a private member's motion by the Social Democrats that will be moved on Tuesday. If the government is to lose that, then we could be looking at a general election and Owen Murphy, the minister who's at the centre of this, uh, says that that could be held on the 28th of December. That in itself remains Remarkable. Nothing remarkable, perhaps, about the printer, because we've been hearing about the €1 million Euro printer in Leinster House for some days now, or €1.3 million or the €800,000 uh, printer that uh, costs an awful lot more because of half of uh, Leinster House having to be knocked down. But uh, there is a, a remarkable twist to this. Uh, let's hear more now, because we're joined by Elaine Lachlan, who's political correspondent with the Irish Examiner. And uh, the doll of the clerk has uh, given uh, members of the public Accounts Committee, an eight-page report, uh, which he'll be taking questions on, uh, probably taking those questions as we speak, uh, Elaine, uh, but uh, the cost is significantly higher, more in the region of uh, 1.8 million euro, nearly 2 million euro. Yes, we had thought that the the total cost of both purchasing and fitting this printer was around 1.3 million, but as you said, the clerk of the doll, Peter Finnegan, he ordered a fast-track investigation into the matter after the details were initially revealed. The Public Accounts Committee had wanted full information around this purchase and uh, Peter Finnegan has come back with that report, given it to the PAC this morning ahead of their meeting and we now know that it's, it's it's around 1.8 million the total cost. Initially, as you said, we we were told that the 
cost of purchasing the printer, which, you know, is a required piece of equipment in Leinster House. There's an awful lot of of pages and documents that, that are printed um, in that by the houses of the Oireachtas every day. This was, you know, a top quality industrial scale printer. We thought it was going to be just over 800,000. We now know that it cost 1.3 million. Um, now that was delivered in, in five lots of those guillotines and, and all sorts of add-ons to it. But essentially, 1.3 million for your printer, which arrived to Leinster House and the guys fitting it realised mm-hmm. it's not going to fit in the door or it won't fit in the room. Um, or it's now, too tall to fit in the room and the height of the printer wasn't really taken into account when they were ordering it. Exactly. And Peter Finnegan does recognise this in the, the, the eight-page document that be, has been sent to PAC this morning. He said that the, the head height, the requirements for the head height, were neither understood nor examined at the critical early stage of procuring this machine. Um, so it was, a, it was a massive oversight, essentially, that no one really looked at what, what do we need to have uh, head height-wise around when we're mm. buying this piece of uh, machinery. So they had to uh, buy the machine, they had to uh, carry out uh, some construction work in order to fit it in, then they decided, uh, well, it's such a precious piece of machinery and it worked so hard they had to install air conditioning. That was a significant cost of about 138000 I think. And mm-hmm. they pay a lot for electricity and then there's a, a, an ongoing maintenance fee and all of these run into thousands uh, stacking up to, uh, to this total figure of $1.8 million. Yes, and uh, just to, to fit out or to uh, refurbish the room and um, a lot of re-engineering of the room um, to fit this printer in. We know now that it cost €229,000. Uh, then the OPW, probably in their wisdom, mm. said, well, when there's a contract on, contractor on site, when we've access to this room, which usually would be a busy printer room, we'll make what was described in the report uh, as ne- necessary additional works um, to the fabric of the building. So they cost 195000 at the moment. Now, the full mm. price of those hasn't come in yet, and Peter Finnegan makes that point in his report. But out of the 195000 we can break it down to 27000 was spent on fabric and maintenance of the building. Uh, further, thirty grand was spent on electrical costs. And then, as you said already, mm. 138,000 on air conditioning upgrades. So it's all it's all mounting up. Yeah. It's, uh, we we hope that this printer will actually uh, get or will finally be used because another aspect to this story, which just keeps on giving, is the mm-hmm. fact that it hasn't printed a single page yet. Yeah. Um, there are difficulties with the the union and the staff there. Uh, it's is deemed, you know, that the, there'll be extra training required um, to work and operate this piece of machinery, and the unions are claiming that that might require a bit more money for their members. Mm. Um, so it, it is in place now. It has been delivered. Everything um, is in order with the room, mm. but it's still not in use. Well, it was paid for in 2018, wasn't it? And uh, it should have been delivered uh, last December, but they couldn't fit it in. Uh, so they had to put it into storage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was in storage at a cost of 2000 a month. Uh, they got some money off that, and I think they spent about 14000 on it. Uh, and it has been brought back in, but it's mm-hmm. in place now, and it has been switched on. 
so uh, what have they been doing uh, for the last 10 months or so? I, I mean, as you say, a lot of printing goes on in, in Leinster House. Uh, I don't know if anybody has answered that or if uh, Peter Finnegan will be asked that this morning. Have they been outsourcing printing or do you know <laughs> or have any idea as to what they've done in the meanwhile? Yes, well, it's a good question. I assume that they're just using the, the old facilities there, the printing that has been going on uh, up until recent times mm. or continues to, to go on. But as you said, this was delivered last December. They realised they couldn't fit it in the room. They had to send it out to Ballymount um, on the outskirts mm-hmm. of Dublin into uh, cold storage for mm-hmm. €2,000 Euro a month, which is quite considerable uh, amount to be paying, you know. Well, that's a big machine the same well. rent yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> on a, on a, hu- a good-sized family house in some Well, that's it. It probably was a, a warehouse the size of a good-sized family house uh, because it's a huge machine, obviously. Exactly. Uh, but uh, the cost uh, hasn't finished yet, uh, or it may uh, cost even more because uh, one of uh, the issues uh, seems to be that uh, there'll be new duties for the staff who operate this and they'll be looking for more money, so there could be an additional cost. Yes, and I know Sean Fleming, the actual chair of the Public Accounts Committee, was out yesterday and he made the point, yes, while staff will need to get used to this new printer and it will require possibly some training, he made the point that, you know, if you're a bus driver and you started 30 years ago, you couldn't possibly expect Mm. um, when you retire to be driving the same vehicle with the exact same um, requirements and and all the rest. So workplace, um, I suppose, the way way people work is constantly changing Mm -hmm. um, and people kind of have to deal with that. So he was trying to shut that down, um, I suppose, before it even gets off the ground. But SIPTU have made um, representations on behalf of the staff who will be operating this machine. So you could see a bit of wrangling going on Mm -hmm. for a bit of extra... Um, pay if staff are to actually operate this machine. Okay, I suppose a lot of people have been rounding it down to a, a million and calling it the million euro printer up to now, uh, but uh, it's 1.8 million and counting. Uh, let's go back uh, to the elections. People will be out voting tomorrow in uh, the by-elections uh, lane. Uh, do you expect that we might be voting again on the 28th of December? Well, I certainly hope not. Um, as you said, the, the by-elections add an extra dimension to this uh, vote of no confidence in Owen Murphy. That was um, announced yesterday by the Social Democrats who are running their own candidates in, in the four constituencies, by-election constituencies. Um, they're highlighting the fact that, yet again, you know, month after month, we are now seeing over 10,000 people in emergency accommodation, close to 4,000 children. And, you know, the numbers seem to be just washing off the backs of people because we've come accustomed to this. We're no longer shocked to hear that there are so many children um, living in in emergency accommodation, in hotels, in emergency hubs, um, you know, not having access to kitchen facilities. Um, we, We hear that there's difficulties with both their mental and physical development as a result um, so the Social Democrats wanted to highlight all of that. That motion will be tabled during their private members' time on Tuesday, um, the first day that the four new TDs arrive up at the Dáil. Um, and depending on who is elected there, we know obviously that Fine Gael won't be voting in favour of this. Mm-hmm. Fianna Fáil have also said that it, while they agree with what the Social Democrats are saying yeah. on homelessness and the housing crisis, that there's absolutely... No point and no justification in calling a general election at this time mm. when Brexit still has to be hammered out. It would be detrimental to this country and it, it just wouldn't 
really be the right thing to do at this point. So if we see Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael TDs, uh, new TDs come to the Dáil, we know that they won't be voting in favour of it. On the other hand, Sinn Féin have said that they will vote with this motion. Again, if we get a Social Democrat or perhaps even an Independent, we don't know who or how they would vote. But um, it'll it'll be tight, but I would say the government are fairly confident now that this won't uh, pass and that they will remain in power at least for another few months anyway. Okay, uh, we'll hear more about that a little bit later on but thank you indeed for joining us this morning as always. Much appreciated Elaine. Elaine Lachlan, political correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about uh, the farmers' protest uh, this uh, last couple of days with Eamon Curley, who's co-chair of uh, the Beef Plan Movement and chair of Beef Plan in Mead. And a very good morning to you, Eamon, and thanks uh, again for joining us on the programme today. Uh, Beef Plan had no involvement uh, in organising these protests, I take it? Uh, That's correct, Michael, but... uh, uh, Many members of Beef Plan did, did support this protest and we felt it was important to to go as individual farmers uh, because we, we think that all farmers should uh, stand together because there's a huge crisis in farming at the moment out there. Was it organised? Um, I mean, how, how could so many individual farmers come up with the same idea to go to Dublin? I mean, it was obviously organised, uh, but uh, is it intentional that you're saying uh, that it was in individual farmers and that it was not a, a, an organised effort so that uh, there is no legal consequences for it? Yeah, well, that's true, Michael. It, it was organised by, by individual farmers. Um, and I, I, I suppose, as you know, the, the whole concept of tractor protests is now... Um, gaining traction all across Europe, uh, like those huge uh, tractor protests in, in Paris and Berlin in recent days. Mm. And uh, we'd see this as a, a further development of that trend. So, so, so basically, farmers all across Europe, uh, um, we think there's a revolution starting to take place. Uh, and, and what was seen in against, Dublin... Against everybody else, is it? Uh, I mean, uh, you know, whilst everybody has the right to protest and there's a constitutional right to assembly, I think people were quite rightly critical of how long this went on for and how other people were disrupted in going about their daily business. Well, I, I suppose we have to take it in concept, Michael, of what's actually happening on the ground there and, and what the general public know the situation in farming is at the moment. Uh, like there has been a, a whole summer of discontent uh, among farmers uh, about uh, basically farmers have been asked and expected to work as slaves uh, and everybody that the government has mm. been completely ineffective we've got a minister for uh, agriculture who who hasn't been able to deal with the situation do you want him to go oh absolutely L- like the guy has proven uh, without a shadow of doubt that he's not fit for the job uh, and the current government Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael uh, uh, must realise that and give us a minister who will actually uh, realise the size of the crisis that's out there in rural Ireland rural Ireland has basically been shut down at the moment mm. uh, the beef farmers are, are being abused but by the factory, okay. by the retailers. Okay, but do 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 two wrongs make a, a right? Uh, that was, I suppose, the question that I was putting to you a moment ago. Whilst uh, there is a, a just cause, if you like, on the farmer's side, uh, whilst rural Ireland uh, is in shutdown, does that give justification for shutting down the city? 
well, the capital city belongs to rural Ireland. Like, we pay our taxes uh, the same as every other citizen in this country. Uh, we have been completely ignored. Um, the, 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 the solutions to deal with the problem okay. uh, uh, haven't been implemented. Okay, well, l- l- have been broken all across the place. Okay, let's, uh, uh, let's, uh, let's accept that argument, Eamon. No other options. Okay, let's accept that argument, Eamon, and we yeah. move on from that point to yeah. what happened then, because uh, the farmers arrived, they asked to speak with the minister, the minister met them, uh, the farmers said they weren't happy, then met with the department uh, and there was confusion over who should be speaking to who and the protest continued uh, and there was no end in sight for some time. Uh, it, it seemed uh, totally uh, ridiculous because of uh, how it was unorganised. Yeah, well, I suppose when you look at the tractor protests across Europe and Paris, uh, Paris and Berlin, like you've got fleets of tractors uh, blocking motorways, blocking mm. city centres, um, like I, I think what people don't realise is how important food is uh, and th- there's absolutely no doubt about it th- that the system of food production across Europe and across the world is broken. But part uh, of it it's yesterday not acceptable was... acceptable to treat farmers as slaves. Okay, but par- part of the solution, I, I think, that was being argued by the farmers in Dublin over the last couple of days was uh, to have uh, the Beef Task Force sit and come to some resolutions for... Right. Uh, but, but it was the same farmers who blocked the Beef Task Force back in October, wasn't it? Well, the, the way I see it is, um, like, Carmel Healy, he, he got jostled a bit going into the meeting, Right. Now, he, he used that as an excuse not to attend the meeting and not to attend the meeting since. Like, the reality is... That's on that, Meat Industry Ireland. Just yeah, the Meat Industry Ireland. The reality is that the farmers of this country have been abused for the last few years but by these same meat factories, by, by being treated uh, abdominally by them. And, like, if Carl McKeely needs a teddy bear or, or, or something to get over this little bit of jostling, uh, it, it's not acceptable... That uh, that's used as an excuse for this task force not to go ahead. But is is it possible to solve this problem, or is it insurmountable? Uh, I mean, we heard in the ad break there the Farmers Journal reporting uh, this week uh, that Brazilian beef is as expensive now uh, as Irish beef, and I'm reading Brendan Kearney uh, in uh, the Irish Times today suggesting uh, that it's not a profitable industry for small farmers, and that you should be looking at some other areas like forestation. Yeah, well, that's part of the problem. Like, uh, forestry isn't the answer. You asked the people of Leitrim uh, what forestry has done to their county, and it has basically shut it down, and it has closed down large parts of their county. Like, what has happened recently, and, and, and uh, the media have, have certainly helped this, is that mm. uh, beef farming and farming in general has got a lot of bad press due to, basically, uh, veganism and climate change. Like I listened to a health expert speak recently, and, well, and like the, be- the benefits uh, of Irish uh, rare grass-fed beef are, are huge for okay. human health. It, it doesn't. It doesn't help your industry, perhaps. Uh, but Brendan Kearney, former uh, director of Chazic, says uh, the money was never in it for small farmers, and it never will be in it for small farmers. Yeah, well, I, I think that's incorrect. Um, I, I, I actually think what's happened is that that the retailers. Uh, are taking an unfair proportion of the retail price and they have been let do it by successive governments who have failed to legislate both in this country and at EU level. Um, 
at the moment, Pader Tobin is trying to bring in a, a, a below-the-cost selling of, of beef bell. Mm. And uh, we're also looking for similar legislation to be brought in at European level. OK, Pader Tobin, Mead West TD and Dane 2 leader. Uh, j- j- just uh, to finish up, uh, if there isn't a solution before Christmas, uh, do you think uh, that the uh, retailers will be blocked from receiving supplies? Or as one farmer put it yesterday, there'll be no turkeys for Christmas? We're just on the, on the whole thing of turkeys for Christmas. Like uh, in general, the public in Dublin were very receptive. I, I was there with, with, with the farmers myself, uh, and one uh, chap that came out of the Shelbourne Hotel, what he said was, "It is now cheaper for him to buy a cooked chicken for his dog than dog food," mm. and uh, and that's the reality. That's why farmers are on the street because the food that they produce. It, they're not getting a proper price for it. Okay. Uh, like the consumers are spending now less of a percentage of, of, of their weekly wages on food than they ever spent. Uh, and this has been driven by these ruthless retailers who, who are, are basically n- not paying uh, the primary producer um, a sufficient amount for the produce. Okay, well I think everybody uh, was clear yesterday uh, that the farmers will be back before Christmas uh, if uh, something doesn't happen. I have to leave it there for the moment though, Eamon, and thank you very much. Okay, thanks very much. Thank, thank you very much. Eamon Curley, co-chair of the Beef Plan Movement. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in and all those who've been in touch. Where do I start, Michael? At the beginning. <laughs> okay, well, we well, start... Well, actually, why don't you we'll, start somewhere in the middle? We'll start with the okay. FAI, so... Okay, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, James from Drogheda listening in and says he doesn't think it's fair that money is being withheld for... To, to assist innocent, as he says, young soccer players who have had, who have nothing to do with what is going on at the top of the mm. FAI. He doesn't think it's right that the struggling clubs should have to be penalised because at the end of the, the day, it will them and the players who will suffer in the long run. Well, uh, h- how do you tick all of the boxes, I suppose, is the question that I was putting to Fergus O'Dowd. Yes. Uh, Jim from Navin says, proper order, Michael, that this has been handed over to the Gardaí and he welcomes that. Well, we don't know what's in the report or no, why it's been handed over no. to the Gardaí, but okay. On the printer, because we've a lot on the printer. Yep, okay. <laughs> uh, this printer this printer fiasco, says Eileen, mm. and the money wasted, it's an insult, Michael. Mm. An insult to people who are struggling in life at the moment, and there are many people in Ireland who are struggling in life, mm. says Eileen. Those on the streets or in houses, those that, that are in awful condition, those who can't get mortgages, those who are lying in hospital trolleys. Um, Eileen feels that it just it 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 kind of it makes people have less faith than they might have had in the whole political system. Yeah, well, it's uh, when you hear things like this happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another listener, Michael, one point eight million, an obscene amount of money. So, are you telling me then that five hundred thousand extra was spent to facilitate the installation? No. Well, yeah, I suppose uh, <laughs> it's made up in different ways. Uh, there was uh, the re- reconstruction works, uh, which is about 230,000 or, mm. or something like that. Uh, but there's also uh, other things like maintenance, electricity, uh, the That's electrics right. and that sort of stuff. Uh, there's also uh, air conditioning that had to be put in as a, a, re- 
result uh, and uh, a number of things uh, that uh, made up uh, this now massive bill. It was a massive bill to begin with uh, of about 1.3 million but the extra 500,000 brings it up to about 1.8. Gemma wants to know who signs off on this money? Um, <laughs> how do you mean who signs off on it somebody has yeah. to give it the go ahead yeah, like somebody has to say yeah. that's okay mm. that's, that's alright well, to was, spend that oh, money well, it was signed off on by the Oireachtas yes it was, it was signed off on by the Oireachtas uh, but uh, uh, the final cost, I don't think, was understood, or uh, the fact that it wouldn't fit, I don't think, was understood. Uh, I think it was uh, put uh, officially to the House of uh, the Doll, and uh, it was approved uh, on uh, the understanding uh, that uh, it had been looked at and the dimensions had been examined and all that sort of stuff. I think, uh, but we'll be hearing more about uh, how this happened later in the day. I'm sure. Liz from Atboy cannot believe what she's hearing, Michael, oh, about right. this okay. printer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they can't even work out how to buy a printer how can they work out how to run the country mm. it's really scary says Liz uh, but your Liz is as bad as you she she believed me yesterday when I said Boy. it cost 25,000 euro for a tape measure Michael I raised <laughs> an eyebrow I never said I believed no, it I, know, I questioned I you I did raise an eyebrow but I was saying that nothing would surprise me yeah. uh, mm. Margaret says the more I hear about the waste of our money over the years the madder I get mm. we spent all that money Michael on the e-voting machines do you remember that yep. and all the money that's been spent on the children's hospital way over budget it just beggars belief how our government can spend our money mm, and this yeah. is the thing says Margaret mm. oh you are or oh you are our money with no mm. consequences uh, and she feels then that at the end of it all they can still get their pay rise yeah well the e-voting machines uh, were very good business uh, locally because uh, they were stored That's in right. Mullen. yeah uh, <laughs> so that brought Lucky the person that owned that premises that, that brought some money to the local economy yeah uh, the uh, big printer was uh, stored in the Ballymount Industrial Estate um, um, another listener was in touch an email in from John w- was listening into your interview with Deputy Mel de Munster in relation to the printer oh this is yesterday and says yeah. it's mm. amazing how Deputy Munster has all the answers to questions that are unknown to everyone anyone that knows anything about putting in a new piece of industrial equipment uh, is a cost to the purchasing company it's called commissioning and installation of the new printer the dogs in the street know about the pay demands and the disguise of health and safety yet she knows nothing about it it's amazing that she had all the answers to the unknown and no answers for the known okay. says John. Well, she said uh, she hadn't heard uh, about uh, the pay claims over health and safety concerns uh, that members of uh, the Sibtu Trade Union are making in relation to operating the new printer now that it is in situ but talk about the unknown because there was a lot of unknowns in uh, the doll the day before yesterday when Michael Creed talked about uh, death threats uh, to members of uh, the meat industry and this was one of the issues that the farmers took up as part of uh, their protest and they wanted him to withdraw what he was saying and it was one of the things that he addressed in his contribution to the doll yesterday when he talked about the ongoing crisis for beef farmers and the efforts that are, are being made to, to address it. My department and the independent chairperson to progress matters that were agreed even in the absence of the, the, round, the task force meeting in, in plenary session. And that has been facilitated by bilateral engagement with all of the stakeholders to progress the issues that I alluded to in my earlier reply. As I said yesterday, uh, Deputy, um, I, I wish that we had the environment where that task force could reconvene tomorrow. Uh, that we have been 
unsparing in our efforts at all levels to, to have this matter dealt with um, and to create the environment where that can happen. And there are many issues that are, you know, uh, making that difficult. And the injunctions is a significant impediment. And I've made the point previously, and I make it again, that I wish those injunctions were dealt with and that we would create the environment that would help to create that. I just want to, uh, if I might, yeah, deal with the issue of the, the question, of, of, yep. of the Dáil record. I attended a meeting in the presence of the Minister for Justice uh, with MII where the issue of the, the re relating to the threats that have been uh, directed at management in the CMB pet food were raised directly with us and the nature of those threats is as I outlined them in the Dáil yesterday. The details against whom they were made was given to my department which was conveyed to the Minister for Justice who spoke to the individual concerned and confirmed that that was the case. That's the Minister for Agriculture, Michael Creed, speaking in uh, Dáil yesterday. Serious stuff, I think, right? Absolutely, Michael. And we've had some uh, comments in, in relation to the farmers and the mm. protests. Uh, Theresa in advice says, I don't understand why the farmers are blocking the city. And then you, you see the footage, Michael, and some of them in large, very ba fancy tractors. They must have the means uh, to be able to purchase those tractors. Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, you need the machinery to, to do, do the, the job. job. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Michael, <laughs> we had a caller. Mm. Uh, Tony was in touch and Tony says that listening to you Michael you don't appear to have much sympathy for the farmers do you think that they decided to travel long journeys from their farms mm. all around mm. the country just mm. for the crack just for the sake of it no mm. Michael they are doing it because it's a last resort yeah. many farmers are at the end of their tether and I don't think you appreciate that alright well I'm sorry that you think that uh, but I, I think I'd be as critical if uh, people from uh, urban areas went down to farms and stopped farmers from doing their work. Listening to yourself, uh, Michael and Marie, discussing uh, yesterday the farmers' protest, I just want to make the point that sometimes you have to do these things in order to be listened to. Mm. They were promised the sun, moon and the stars to end the factory protests, but yet they didn't get what they were promised. Yeah, well, uh, they stopped uh, the meeting of uh, that uh, independent uh, beef uh, forum uh, and uh, then called for it to uh, be uh, put in place. Uh, I mean, as I was saying yesterday in the programme, there's many ways of making a protest, uh, but putting a gun to people's head is a questionable way. If I have time for two more, mm. please, on just the no confidence in the housing minister oh, yeah. that you were discussing mm. with Elaine Lockton mm. from the Irish Examiner. Uh, a listener was in touch to say, really surprised about Fianna Fáil. Mm. I'm hearing that they're not, that they're going to oppose this no confidence motion. No, they're not. No, they're, they're just going to abstain. They abstain. Won't, they, they won't vote okay. one way or the other. Well, this mm. listener is saying that you hear Fianna Fáil complaining on your show, Michael, yeah. and on other stations mm. about how tough it is for people and how bad the housing crisis is, yet they are still prepared to support the Minister. Mm. If Fianna Fáil really thinks he's not up to the job, why are they taking this stand? Uh, because they don't think it's the right time for an election, uh, because of Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, think the, I, I think the listener is probably right, yeah. I mm. uh, want to say to Michael, another listener um, got in touch I'm just looking to see on the scene name. Yes, uh, Jimmy, to say, Michael, ask ordinary people if they have confidence in the housing minister. I think many people don't anymore. Mm. Uh, it's one of the biggest crises facing the country, and he still hasn't managed to address 
that since he got into office. Mm, yeah. It's probably about time they put somebody else in there to rattle out the same old excuses. Do you think? Yeah, and then you could say, oh, well, give him a chance. He's only new in the job. Yes. Well, mm. that's, that is what happens. We, mm. we have that too yeah. in, in health yeah. as well. Mm. Okay, we'll finish on those for the moment. Thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Fine Gael Press uh, didn't have uh, somebody uh, to speak to us uh, this morning about uh, the confidence motion that's to be moved in at the Minister for Housing, Owen Murphy, next week. Oddly enough, Fianna Fáil didn't have anybody for us either, although we had also asked them to talk about a private member's motion uh, that they had put in front of uh, the doll last night, which would have uh, resulted in one and three houses built in new developments being put aside for first-time buyers. Uh, that will be voted on later. But let's talk about these issues with Joan Collins, who's an independence for change TD for Dublin South Central. Uh, you didn't uh, oppose uh, the Fianna Fáil bill last night. I don't think uh, you were terribly interested I- I- in it or what it might a- achieve. But uh, before we talk about that, do you have uh, confidence in the Minister? No. And why is Absolutely that? Absolutely not. Um, this Minister and this government have been in power now for the last, since 2011, and we have not seen the urgency, the robustness in legislation to deal with the housing crisis that we're facing. Um, and he has continuously come in with his rebuilding Ireland, tinkered around at the edges, but hasn't, had a, hasn't done anything fundamental to address the issue of the 100,000 people on housing waiting lists, on the amount of people being evicted from their homes um, and have nowhere to go. Um, people who we, we're doing at least one case a week in the RTB where families are being, are being issued um, final notices from landlords <clears throat> and mainly it is to increase the rent that's the long term objective um, and we're in there every week trying to uh, keep people in their homes um, and we're, it's, it's, the, the, the crisis we're facing has not been dealt adequately enough uh, and we have, no we, in we have the means, you contend at least, uh, that we have the means, that we have the land to we build the houses land. on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were saying uh, that we've uh, enough land that is owned by the state and has already been zoned for residential units to build yep. 100,000 houses. Yep, that is the case. Um, uh, that has been um, investigated. It has been published by Mel Reynolds. Um, he's a, um, a researcher in housing and that. In, um, and he has, and other Irish Congress of Trade Unions have come out with, um, with these figures as well, that there's enough public uh, land already zoned to build 100,000 units. That's what I'm saying is what needs to be done. We need a robust, directed challenge to... The, the uh, market that is not providing the homes that we need at affordable prices, um, and we're ta- I'm talking about houses that should be, you know, about 180,000 to 225,000, they're affordable homes, not the 310,000 that we're talking about in Devney Gardens, or the 420,000 private homes that they're going to um, uh, sell in, um, uh, in Devney Gardens. That's public land that's been handed over to a private developer. Absolutely scandalous, and in some ways... the To build affordable homes, isn't it? Well, no, they're saying uh, there's be 30% social, 20% affordable and 50% private. That's what's going to be built on that. But there is a question about what is affordable these days. Exactly. 310,000, the Minister is saying, is affordable on O'Devany. Now, um, on an average earnings, most people can't afford that. And the fact of the matter is that in Dublin itself, 
um, I think the average uh, uh, income um, in relation to uh, uh, is about 36,000. So mm-hmm. anybody in 36,000 cannot afford a mortgage of 310,000. It's just not, it's not feasible. So as you said, it's a question of what is affordable. And we, the minister hasn't, or the department hasn't come up with that figure yet as such. Um, and then it's also about the uh, private private landlords and the cost of rent in Inichicore now, where I yeah. live, it's nearly €2,200 per month for a three-bedroom house to rent. It's about 1800 for a two-bedroom. People cannot afford that. Right. Uh, and you were talking about private landlords right across the world uh, in your contribution mm-hmm. to the Dáil last night. You were quoting the UN Special Rapporteur on the right to adequate housing uh, yeah. and the value of residential real estate. Uh, uh, I'm not sure I can get my head around uh, the number because there's so many zeros on it. Yeah, um, the Special Rapporteur on uh, uh, for Adequate Housing, um, she's done a, a sort of a guideline to all countries throughout the world um, saying listen, there's a serious issue here that particularly since 2008 it was happening before 2008 um, those new actors invaded the housing scene, the hedge funds private equity funds etc mm. and Ireland is most affected by that and she gave a figure that the global value of residential real estate is 163 trillion US dollars mm. that that's almost three times the value of all the GP- GDPs of every country in the world mm. So they are making a huge killing on this at the expense of people not having a secure roof over their heads. Um, and I think that is the... $163 trillion. Trillion. And trillion. It, it just, I think, I know everybody knows what a trillion is, uh, but mm-hmm. some, some of us are a bit slower. A trillion is a thousand billion, isn't it? And a yep. billion is a thousand million. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's I don't know how many zeros uh, make up a, a trillion but that's an awful lot of money and that's an awful, an awful lot, lot of money. wealth uh, and she's put that in, in another context which is uh, in relation to the money or the value uh, that countries have what countries are worth the, the GDP yes. of countries mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah, it's three times the value of the world <laughs> the, all <laughs> the countries in the world um, uh, above their GDP and and, and this Fine Gael government have been complicit in that when uh, Michael Noonan brought in the tax incentive for Irish collective asset management vehicles, they're called, um, where short-term high-yield funds um, avail of incredibly generous tax breaks, um, uh, pushing first-time buyers out of the market. Um, they, they're able to flip those when they sell and pay that literally no tax. And this is how they're making that sort of money. So we're buying into this uh, approach, uh, and you were making the argument uh, that we're buying into it intentionally, by policy, by policy that was put in place first by Fianna Fáil uh, and continued on by Fine Gael. Absolutely, you know. um, I mean, Fine Gael's tax breaks breaks are pushing, they're pushing up the price of renting and buying while crowding out first-time buyers. So that's the very point. And Fianna Fáil were complicit in it as well with the tax tax incentives that they brought in during the uh, property boom during the Celtic Tiger, which included cuts to capital gains tax, cuts to stamp mm. duty and Section 23 tax relief. And they caused the first wave of institutional investment. And people are suffering from that. People can't afford to buy a home because of that. Mm. People can't afford to rent. And Phoenix Falls policy actually pushed an awful lot of people into the rented market. There were mainly small-time landlords. But Fianna Fáil continue, or Fianna Gael continued that, where they shifted the incentives to large-scale global equity investors. And it's not just happening in Ireland, even though we are particularly affected by it through the policies that were brought in by Fianna Gael, um, but it's happening all over the world. And these 
private equity um, funds and hedge funds and all that are gaining as the point made 163 trillion US dollars meanwhile we have people that families that are working hard they're going getting up early in the morning as our Taoiseach mm. says and they can't afford to rent privately and they can't afford to buy we had a young couple with two children who were there last week where they're trying to two of them are working they're trying to save but every time they get to a certain point where they have a few bob something happens and the price of houses go up again and they can't afford them so that, the, that's the point I made last night that we have mm. enough publicly owned land zoned for residential if there was a will by, by politics to deal with the crisis we could be dealing with it right now and if that had been adopted a number of years ago we would be seeing some hope for people um, at this stage Okay well the government says it has its own approach and that uh, if we give them enough time uh, we'll see results and uh, they'll bring about an end to this crisis you reject that uh, and uh, so do others and that's why the Social Democrats have uh, tabled this motion of no confidence in Owen Murphy as the Minister for Housing which will be voted on next Tuesday somebody rang in a few minutes ago and asked uh, why is it Fianna Fáil are supporting own Murphy, given how much they give out about him and give out about the government's housing policies. Uh, and as I said to the caller, um, well, they're not supporting Owen Murphy. Uh, they're abstaining, they're not voting. But in effect, that is supporting Owen Murphy, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But what the government will probably do next week is change that to a vote of confidence for um, mm. Owen Murphy um, and maybe Fianna Fáil will abstain again on that. Leo Radcliffe put to Fianna Fáil yesterday, essentially, if you want an election in two weeks' time, well, <laughs> support the vote of no yeah. confidence. Fianna Fáil are not going to do that, you know. They, mm. They're they're cute or politically um, to take a chance like that. Um, but that's for their own political gain. I think that we should be voting no confidence in Owen Murphy. I'm a bit hypocritical about the Social Democrats putting this forward now after their stance last week on Odebney Gardens where they voted to hand over that public land to that bar to developers um, uh, public land uh, to, pri- to private developers so I'd question their, their um, hypocrisy there as well but okay. um, mm-hmm. I do think we should be supporting um, a vote of no confidence in Owen Murphy but he, okay. he has not made a difference for people and he won't make a difference for people OK, I should have mentioned that the Social Democrats weren't uh, available to us this morning Oh, either. you either not? Oh, OK <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, work so away <laughs> work away, go, go ahead with these criticisms maybe they'll come back uh, they're welcome of course uh, to respond should they wish uh, uh, but uh, Fianna Fáil, unfortunately, not here to respond to the criticisms uh, that you've laid at uh, their table uh, this morning. But uh, here we are in a, a situation where, uh, for the right reason or hypocritical reasons or whatever the reasons, uh, this motion will be tabled next week. You say Fianna Fáil will abstain. They're uh, cute enough uh, not to look for an election coming into Christmas. But Owen Murphy said uh, if the government fails, if he fails, if the government fails, uh, there'll be uh, an election on the 28th of December. You couldn't mm-hmm. rule it out altogether at this stage, could you? I don't think you can rule anything out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I certainly uh, don't think Fianna Fáil are ready for an election at this stage. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, they've supported all down the line the the tinkering around that Fine Gael have done. They've supported all the budgets, so they they are implicit in all this, you know. And then mm. they stand. They speak out of both sides of their mouth, and and that is the 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 legacy of Fine Fine Fáil, particularly um, uh, where they can say one thing to one group of people like developers, and they can say another thing to working class people, and make them think that they're doing something for them. Mm. Um, the the 
policies of Fianna Fáil over the last 20 years have been disastrous in relation to housing. Fianna Gael is the same. And until we get a political will to actually implement and set up a sort of a, um, a, a housing body that's specifically looking at where's all our public lands, mm-hmm. what's the plan, we're going to bring in, uh, you know, uh, policies to build uh, both traditional public housing and also cost rental model for a mixture of tenancy of tenure um, to deal with the crisis, then we're going to continue on as we are at the moment. And these budget funds will just lap up thousands and trillions of, euro, of dollars into their, into their accounts. Okay. And meanwhile, people are facing disasters. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Independence for Change TD for Dublin South Central, Joan Collins. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Now, the Cabinet has agreed uh, to the introduction of graduated speeding penalties, although it has been widely reported uh, that there was a a split between ministers with some of uh, the rural ministers objecting, saying it would be an attack on rural Ireland. Indeed, many independent TDs feel the same way. Let's uh, talk about this with Michael Fitzmaurice, an independent TD for Roscommon Galway. And a very good morning to you, Michael Fitzmaurice. Thanks for joining us here. Well, um, let me be clear. I didn't say I was going to take I just dealt with the facts. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Sorry, I did. I wasn't attributing that to you. I was just saying. I mean, there has uh, been claims uh, by some of the independent TDs. Uh, I think Michael Healy Ray and Danny Healy Ray, for example, were saying uh, that it was uh, Mi- Michael Co- Mi- Michael Collins. I think said it was uh, an attack on rural Ireland as well. And it was reported that some of uh, the ministers uh, from rural Ireland were saying that it was uh, an attack on people living in rural areas. Yeah, first of all, um, look, there was a report that there was a split, but there didn't seem to be too much of a split because um, our, our understanding is it went through the doll. Um, I think the relevant points of this um, proposed legislation is that um, it's supposed to come in in January. Um, in my view, uh, looking at legislation that's there at the moment and the length it takes legislation to go through, um, I suppose you have the same word as we have, Michael, that mm-hmm. there'll be an election probably by Easter. And if it's an election by Easter, I think there'll be printed legislation uh, in vain because you wouldn't be going through uh, first stage, second stage, go through committees, go back again and go through the Shannon and all that. But anyhow, let's let's see what happens in that. Second of all, um, if you look at uh, what we have at the moment in the line of penalty points, we're not able to enforce it. If you look at the number of licences, that's not... Um, basically picked up if you look at the number, the amount of money and fines. Um, we don't seem to be able to enforce the legislation we have and what we seem to be doing at all um, and even if you look at last year and I've been on your programme, Michael, mm-hmm. in relation to the drink driving and that. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, and you know, we heard it was going to be a game changer last year, unfortunately from January to July of this year we had a, we have a higher number of 7% actually increase in road deaths and that's sad to hear. Bush last year we were told that if we had the drink driving legislation in that it was going to save so many lives um, you can bring in all the legislation you want and we can vote and do whatever you want but at the end of the day if you have an enforcement then you're not going to be uh, on top of it no more than every other mm. type of legislation Okay is it uh, that uh, at times uh, people feel that they should be able to exceed the speed limit? No it's not, it's not about exceeding the speed limit mm. but I mean, but to um, go 30 kilometres over, uh, I mean, it is quite dramatically over. Well, first of all, in my opinion, I'd be on motorways fairly often, Michael. Yeah. And, um, you know, in my opinion, 70 on a motorway 
and, a, and, and at the standard of motorways, you're nearly crawling, to be honest about it, with, you know, with the, with the fitness of the road. Mm. And then I'd go down roads that should be 80 kilometres and they wouldn't be fit for 50 kilometres, to be quite honest about it. And there's a review going on of um, between the TAI and the different councils around the country. There's a review of the speed limits going on. Yep. And you want to make sure that there's roads. Like, I could go down a road this minute near me, the road called Westeda Road, and um, if I was doing 60 kilometres or 70 kilometres, I'd kill someone because a narrow, tight road with bins. Well, there's, lots, there's lots of roads that are uh, 80 kilometres, uh, but they would have been 100. They would have been 60 mile an hour roads before, yeah. before they some changed. Of the, some, of those have, some of those have been changed. Well, most of, of them, road yeah. most, most of them, be, most of them were reduced uh, when we went from miles to kilometers, weren't they? They went from sixty mile an hour to eighty kilometers. So, in other words, from a hundred to eighty. Uh, yeah. But but a lot of them were safe to drive at a hundred uh, on in, in uh, new. Some money. of them, some of them would be, but yeah. there are roads as well, Michael. And this is there's a review on at the moment. This and part of this review, you know, was done in two thousand and fourteen. Mm. I think when Leo Varadkar was minister for transport, actually. Um, and it was never, they never went any further with it. And now they have to sort of really go back to the drawing board again. But um, until you do things like that, until you enforce what you have there at the moment, um, you're not going to, and thirdly, um, this crack of, you know, a go say a sense stuck within the 30 kilometre round and then away into the town, as again, a black spot out somewhere mm. where unfortunately someone might have lost their life, is sickening to people. And we need to make sure that roads are safe. On top of that, Minister Ross, and I've said this before in your programme, um, there's 10% of our roads that are defective, that are causing accidents. And because that costs money, he doesn't seem to want to address that situation at all. But I think there are things we need to go address and, mm. and enforce the laws we have there before we need to be arguing and tossing about a new law again. Okay, uh, do you think that there are some people who drive too slowly? Uh, I mean, some of those roads uh, that you used to be able to drive at 100 kilometres on, uh, now the speed limit is 80 kilometres, uh, but quite often you'll come across people who are driving at, let's say, 60 or 50 kilometres. Well, look, you have to be understanding on roads um, there are people that would drive slower. Look, it is, if you're behind someone for a good ride, and it's it's the nature of people. Mm. I do a lot of driving. I do 60,000 miles a year. And if you're behind a few people, they'll be going real slow and you're probably in a hurry to go somewhere. The tendency for people is that you get so frustrated that you go to go. You know what I mean? And mm. and you have to sort of bite your lip and stay. And that's not criticizing people that go slow, but it's the tendency of a person. And if people is putting up a lot of mileage, generally they're on a fairly tight schedule. And um, there is a frustration in that, but we need to just, we're, we're, we're a mighty country at bringing in laws, and we're above pressing the buttons, bringing in laws, and then they nearly go into the shelf because we're not held to enforce. Have a look at the amount of money that's not collected. Have a look at the licenses. Have a look at the laws we have there that we're not even enforcing. Mm. And when, if we start enforcing them and doing it, then we can go down the road looking at something. Else. But if you cr- come across somebody who's driving at, at 60 and you want to get past them and you feel that you must put your foot to the floor, should you do that? Well, it depends on the safety of doing something. You, first mm. of all, you have to... Well, I mean, if that means you go up to 90 or 100 to get past them where the speed limit is 80... Well, generally, if they're doing 60, you wouldn't be going to 90 or 100. But uh, you have to drive within... 
the, the, the speed limits of the road, whatever they are, as good as possible. Mm. If someone is doing the speed limit, they're doing the speed limit in front of you, so you're not supposed to be going up with them. But if someone is doing less than it, obviously you can't. Yeah, but if if you look up ahead and you see, you know, on a perfectly straight road, you see something coming the other direction, but you think, if I go fast enough, I'll get past them. Should you do that? Or should no. you be penalised if you do it? You, well, first of all, um, in most roads, and look, let's, let's be real about this. In most roads, there isn't a guard stuck on every mile of it or looking around the corner at you at what you're doing. You have to use common sense. You have to mm. um, do what's safe and do what's right. And if there's something coming, you don't do it. That's, uh, that's looking for an excellent tap. Mm. And sometimes they're stuck at the bottom of a hill, of course. The what? They're stuck at the bottom of a hill, out of sight. Uh, that yeah, but this is a, you could yeah you could be if if you were you know going down a hill or whatever or going down a fall. You, you, you could be blinded on that you wouldn't see something, but you need to drive. Look at the rules of the road are the rules of the road, and you're learning them when you go to drive. And that's the first thing. No one is talking about the rules of the road or criticizing the rules of the road. What we need to do is have things, uh, everything in moderation, use moderation itself. We need to drive carefully. We need to respect the, the, the speed limits that's there. But bring in more legislation going to solve the world mm. if you haven't the enforcement of what you're going to do. But does it not send out a, a message to people about being safe, about safety? What does it send out? Um, that we're going to just bring in another bit of legislation and after that leave it up on the shelf? Well, I suppose I the, 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 the best example of that is uh, the smoking ban. And when they introduced that, everybody said, sure, how are they going to stop us? Uh, but once it was made illegal, people did stop from smoking. It was, it was. Oh. With all due respect and the care they are trying to do their best, they don't have the resources to be around every bend watching for what speed someone is doing. In fairness, look at mm. this isn't uh, the biggest um, thing in the world of people going, you know, um, way over limits. Most people drive within limits. Most people respect the rules of the road. Um, and if we do, we have the laws there. Like, there's no point in saying we have all the laws there. What they're saying is that we're going to give um, a graduated and, uh, mm. system. And to be quite frank about it, the legal eagles, what they have said six or eight months ago, is that this will um, is questionable whether you can do it, and second of all, it is also probably going to if you can do it, it will cause a quagmire because your what person's nature they'll be debating was it eighty nine or was it eighty or was it ninety or was it sixty nine? Do you know what I mean? And mm. this is going to quagmire yeah. up all the course. Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us as always. Michael Fitzmaurice, Independent TD for Roscommon Galway. Michael Reed on LMFM. There's much anticipation uh, that Lisa Smith will be returned uh, from uh, Turkey to Ireland in uh, the coming days as to whether she'll be able to walk out of uh, Dublin Airport or at Liberty to go home to Dundalk is in question. Uh, but Declan Power, defence analyst, former career soldier and author of Siege at Jadoville, writes in today's Irish Independent that if we're serious about preventing future Lisa Smiths, then we must recognise that developing suitable mechanisms for countering extremism and de-radicalisation are as important as having the necessary law enforcement techniques or legislative apparatus. Declan Power is on the line. A very good morning to you, Declan, and uh, thanks good for morning. joining How us. Good morning, how are you? Uh, you say it's uh, inevitable that she'll be in the care of the state for some time, uh, but what will the state do while she is in its care uh, and that it would be probably different if she was in a different jurisdiction? Well, yeah, it, it very much depends on the jurisdiction. Um, but certainly within most Western European 
uh, jurisdictions. There have been programs developed that are you know culturally specific and culturally sensitive to aid in the, the, the de-radicalization of um, individuals that have been caught up in this this type of, uh, of extremism. Some of these people have been directly involved in perpetrating violence. Some of them have been just part of, shall we say, that lifestyle. And the idea is it's not just about changing their mindset. It's trying to understand the, the driving forces because an awful lot of what has happened, and I suspect this would have been the case with Lisa Smith, it's a case of where the political becomes personal and the, the personal becomes political. The driving forces uh, that cause them to get involved or be attracted to an institution such as Islamic State are often nothing nothing to do with the Islamic State policies or background itself. They're often to do with issues of their own and they've transposed them and engaged in a kind of transference. And when that is learnt, that gives a society like ours the opportunity to interrupt that process in the future. I think it's interesting to note that the kinds of, uh, in Ireland, uh, even though we've been fearful about Islamic extremism happening within our borders, this hasn't happened from within the, the, the traditional Islamic community. In fact, the two leading Irish people that have gotten involved in Islamic extremism were native-born and uh, converts to Islam. Khalid, formerly Terence Kelly mm. uh, from Dublin, and Lisa Smith. Yeah. And that, that tells us how, how you know, the Islamic community, I think, are doing a good job of policing their own communities to avoid extremist behaviour, and they alert the state authorities to it. But when people from outside of those communities get lured into a, a, a distorted and perverted version uh, of, of Islam and pursue this extremism, as Lisa Smith appeared to do, then if it, it, it behoves us to ask further questions and to figure out a process, as I said, to interrupt that cycle. Mm. And many of them are what we would consider to be ordinary people, uh, people uh, who would have been brought up in uh, the same way that we were in the same part of uh, the world that we were brought up uh, and uh, with the same type of beliefs uh, that we were brought up. Well, as you say, something has changed and then uh, that has led to something else. But how do you get to the bottom of it if the problem that these people have with the Western world, if you like, is personal rather than an attraction to IS and the cause of IS. Uh, how how do you de-radicalise people? And you've looked at how they've approached this in other countries, in Nigeria in particular. Well, yeah, I mean, there was a particular programme I was involved in some years ago uh, that was primarily about countering uh, violent extremism, uh, particularly in the north of Nigeria, where there's a rather nasty internal war there between people who uh, espouse support for Boko Haram, uh, an Islamic extremist organization, and the Nigerian government. And one of the interesting things of, of that program, uh, the, the de-radicalization part, which was implemented in a prison down in Abuja, in the south of Nigeria, was that most of these young men were not particularly uh, driven by a fervor for uh, Islamic State because they, Boko Haram had, had proclaimed an alliance with them and that they were of the same uh, ideological background. A lot of these young men had been sucked into these activities because poor governance had left them with no opportunity for uh, a life of status. They needed a certain amount of, uh, of a chance to make money to be able to buy cattle, to be able to afford a small dwelling. And if they didn't have that, they couldn't uh, be able to afford to have a wife. And in their society, they were considered... Uh, adolescence until they had a wife. So the cultural triggers there made them ripe 
uh, candidates to be sucked into an organisation that paid them a stipend, gave them status within their society. And this was countered when they were in prison by restoring a sense of, uh, of self-respect and mm. dignity to them that was uh, not Im- embroiled in a, a, an Islamic extremist narrative, that they could have a life, a future uh, and a status without having to go down that route. And it was about giving them opportunities towards education. It was about using uh, imams and other teachers of Islamic culture and uh, religion and history to to counter the narrative, the simplistic narratives they've been given, Mm. but also to give them opportunity towards skills and uh, self-determination of their own. You could liken that, uh, I I think, uh, you could liken it, could you not, uh, to, let's say, young people growing up in working class places in Northern Ireland? You could, exactly. You see, these things don't always transpose from culture to culture, but there are key aspects that do. So even you know, the, the, the de-radicalization program used for Boko Haram isn't necessarily going to be exactly the same as the one you would use in a Western European country. But uh, there are elements of it. The key ingredients are there. Like it, it's interesting mm-hmm. that at no time have I encountered, uh, you know, in terms of how we dealt with militant, you know, violent republicanism or indeed violent loyalism, mm-hmm. where there are systemized programs put in place to try and counter the narrative. These things tended to happen uh, because individuals within communities, activists, leaders, took it upon themselves to, in, to, to provide a counter-narrative. But when you actually systemize it, and you, it should be you know, led and financed from the top down and then systemized within the, the various communities. We could have a very successful instrument to counter uh, the seeds of violent mm. extremism, not just within Islamic communities. I mean, at mm. no point am I saying it should be just limited to that. But violent extremism from either militant republicanism or extreme mm. right wing or white supremacists or any variety of these people peddling uh, a, a sort of attractive, simplistic um, message of hate to make people feel better about themselves. Sometimes mm. people need to be able to point the finger and have somebody to blame in order to feel better about their own personal circumstances. Maybe we need to look in on ourselves a, a little bit because, as I said uh, at the outset, Lisa Smith and uh, Khalid Kelly had uh, very similar upbringings to a, a lot of us. Uh, Lisa Smith uh, to a, a lot of, uh, let's say, women who are probably a little bit younger than me listening to us uh, this morning in the locality. Uh, Khalid uh, Kelly, Terence Kelly, uh, some uh, who had a, a life that mirrored mine, brought up in the same part of the world, I think exactly the same age as me, went to the same type of schools, had the same type of working class upbringing, was an altar boy and so on. Uh, and very difficult to understand why they would have been radicalised. Uh, but maybe it's because uh, they converted to Islam and uh, didn't like how they were received by us. And maybe that's a question that we have to look at. Well, very true, a very good point. But what's interesting with both of those individuals in terms of their conversion to Islam uh, at, at, at certain points, both of them would have encountered uh, people within the, certainly uh, Lisa Smith, uh, within the, her, her conversion process, people that were offering a version of Islam that wasn't radical enough for her. She, you know, it wasn't, she, she wasn't taking on board. It, people often hear the phrase sometimes used, the zeal of the convert. Mm. And she seemed to exhibit that. So the people that were mentoring her and guiding her on the path towards Islamic Enlightenment, if you like, in Ireland, were being very responsible, sensible people. And had she stayed within that that camp, uh, she she would have been fine. But she looked for something further, which led her to leave the defence forces and then to marry an individual in Tunisia. And, and again, 
that would have been, she was actually living then in an Islamic society in a country that was traditionally Islamic. But she looked to go further again and online made contact with the second gentleman that she married uh, and led her into Islamic state. Now, Terence Kelly followed a similar path. Uh, he became radicalized after he had been imprisoned in a Gulf state for making illicit alcohol. And again, there were people within the Islamic communities in both Ireland and the UK who encountered him, who were, you know, dumbfounded at his level of extremism and vitriol because it wasn't founded in a logical level. And eventually he found the appropriate, from his point of view, the appropriate mentors, uh, you know, within, within extremist Islam, within the more Wahhabist and Salafist versions of it. And that seems to satisfy his need. The question is, why did they have this need? And my point would be, how, encountering this, this isn't just a security force or security service. Oh, I'm sorry. I think the line just suddenly dropped out on us. Uh, unfortunately, uh, apologies for that. Uh, that's where we have to leave you, though, with our thanks to security analyst Declan Power. That brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.